Welcome to the show. This is The Reason Radio, coming to you from two different time zones. My name is Evan Shamlin, alongside Nick Arthur. And let's jump right in here, Nick. We, uh, some, a common event we've been talking about for since the series has started is the Spurs-Thunder series. It is one of the best 2-3 matchups, I would say, ever in NBA history. This feels like a conference final, with uh, except for game one, which is like a 40,000-point blowout by the Spurs. This game has, or these last three games have been fantastic to watch. With the Thunder actually pulling out a uh, controversial win in San Antonio in game two, which unfortunately we were on the podcast last week at that time and just finished up before what, before the craziest sporting or craziest ending of a sporting event last week happened with five no calls in the last 13 seconds with the Thunder escaping with a the victory. Then game two, Spurs come back and do what the Spurs do, they win at Oklahoma City, and then last night, Kevin Durant came alive for 41 points, leading the third, leading the Thunder to victory, leaving us where exactly we should be, a 2-2 series tie, heading back to San Antonio. I look at this, and I, I see 2-2, and I say, okay, Spurs in six. I, I just, it's a Spurs thing to do. They're, they're too loaded. Um, even with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant playing well, and even Enos Cantor and Steven Adams playing well, I just don't see how one, the Thunder ever win another game in San Antonio, and two, how I don't even see this going seven now. But what do you think out there? Bring us your Midwest viewpoint. You know, see, I, I'm i in a little bit of a different boat than you. I I can see not only this thing potentially going seven, but I, I can see the Thunder winning this series. Um, I just think they're such a tough matchup for San Antonio. I think what Duran and Westbrook are doing – has them playing at a level right now where they can play with anyone, you know, if they're on top of their game. And it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I, I did not watch game one. Um, I didn't either. I, you I know, I'm not either. sure if it was a, a Durant Westbrook struggling from the field or what the case was, but it seems like since that game when Durant took a lot of heat in that map series um, where he missed all those shots, he has really, really responded well. And in his defense, I mean, this is a guy, which you pointed out a couple podcasts back, who doesn't normally take a lot of heat. Um, and I think he took a lot of after that game. So I'm going to say, to your uh, displeasure, kudos to Kevin Durant for responding so well to that and, uh, and, and, you know, and coming back. But absolutely, man, I can see – I just – this I, I don't see San Antonio just being an automatic win in San Antonio for uh, game five, which I believe is tomorrow night. Um, I'm not saying the Thunder are going to win. I'm just saying I'm in a different boat than you. I don't think this is over just because San Antonio did what they needed to do by stealing game three in Oklahoma City. See, I, I couldn't believe last night I kept waiting for the Thunder to blow it. Like I just kept waiting because they're a terrible fourth quarter team. Absolutely terrible. They're positive and differential. Uh, the first three quarters, and then they have a terrible one in the fourth because they've blown so many games in the fourth quarter. So I'm just waiting for the Spurs to do it, to just come back and do it. And last night, Kevin Durant said no to that. Um, so, yeah, praise him for, for that performance. But I just don't think he can do it again. I have an interesting question for you because, you know, Greg Popovich, all-time great coach, you, you don't go back on – you don't really question him. But, you know, he is using Kawhi on Westbrook and not Durant. And I just find that interesting. I mean, they have an assortment going at Durant, even from, from Danny Green to Boris Diaw. 
I mean, but Kawhi has been remaining on Westbrook, which I found that interesting because Kawhi definitely, I mean, defensive player of the year, you want to stick that on the best guy. And it's interesting to me that Pop is basically saying he thinks that the Thunder go where Westbrook goes, not necessarily where Durant goes. Do you see that the same way I do? I think that if you if you can if you can put a guy on Westbrook and really limit his penetration, I think that you take away a lot of the Thunder their other options, if that makes sense. Um I think if you if you put a guy on, on Durant, then Westbrook is creating for other guys and they're running something comparable to an offense. Um and that, this kind of leads me to my next point. I'll, and I'll answer the question, I will. But, you know, this game down the stretch, fourth quarter, six minutes left, it's really cool to watch because on one end with the Spurs, you have an offense being run, a team working really hard for a bucket. And then on the other end, it's just complete isolation. Whoever's legs are freshest on that possession, whether it's going to be Durant or Westbrook, isoed. And, and it's just, it's, it's seriously isolation, one-on-one basketball on one end, where the other end, the team wants to force, you know, five on five, get everyone involved, work the ball around and get a bucket. Um, so going off of that, I think guarding Westbrook with Kawhi forces you to do that one-on-one basketball that much more. If, does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? I, you know, when, when, when Westbrook is limited on his penetration, when he's limited on his ability to create, you're forcing basically Durant to go one-on-one a lot, and you're forcing the other guys on, on the Oklahoma City team to create for themselves and for other players. Whereas if you put a guy on Durant, Westbrook's going to do his thing. He's going to create. Are you following this? You're being really quiet. I don't know if you're on board or not. No, I'm following. I'm, I'm following. Uh, I, I see what you're saying. But basically then you're saying, you know. And I don't know, Durant, if, you're, I don't know if you're saying that, hey, if I put Tony Parker on Westbrook, which is basically my only option other than Kawhi Leonard, other than well, obviously Patty Mills off the bench, you know, is you know does does Parker have the legs to defend and play offense? Well, I guess what I'm thinking is you know Pop has been playing the Thunder. Seems it seems like every year in the playoffs this matchup happens, and of course they see each other a ton during the regular season. So he's had a lot of experience with this, and for him just to say, you know, I think we would benefit more from Kawhi guarding Westbrook and taking away his ability to drive and create. And the thing that I guess what takes or what gets me away, but now I think now I think I'm going to answer my own question. I guess what he's thinking is he's putting Kawhi on him to cut off the dribble, so the most confident, awful three-point shooter, Russell Westbrook, will take more threes. I guess that's kind of what he's wanting to do, as as opposed to you know Kawhi taking away the dribble of Durant, right? And then Durant just shooting threes all day because Durant's a much better three-point shooter than. Than Russell Westbrook. And I think Russell Westbrook settles more than Durant for the mid-range jumper. He on, does. You know, you know, we're, I, I, every time I see Russell Westbrook, he does this stuff, and I feel like he makes it, and then I go look at his percentages, and he's not that good. He just takes a lot of shots from, from those areas because I always feel like he's pulling up for three and he's pulling up from the elbow, but he's just not that good at those shots. He's good at getting to the basket. So maybe I've actually answered my own question where now I can understand where Pop – but I see what you're saying. See, the way I thought about it when I first looked at it was, is he just saying that Kevin Durant is not a good distributor? You know what I mean? Doesn't really get the rest of the offense going. He gets himself going, but he can't get the rest of the offense going. Or maybe he's saying Boris Diaz is a great defender. Because, I mean, he's – Boris Diaz guarded LeBron James in finals games. I mean, Boris Diaz, maybe he's just a secret defensive stud. That we really don't we don't respect we don't respect enough. I can't even say that. I can't even have that coming out of my mouth. But but anyway, I 
is going to be a great last three games. That's something we'll definitely we'll definitely be. So you've about got Spurs in six. I, I do, I do. I think, uh, and I think honestly, I think tomorrow night's a blowout. I think the Spurs come home and they uh, they're mad. They don't like to lose at home, uh, and I think they'll beat them by double digits. And then we'll have a close one back in OKC. But I think uh, the Spurs will leave the home fans uh, broken hard in Game Six. I'm going to go really bold here. Spurs and seven. <laughs> okay, that's excellent. That's uh, that's excellent by you. Um, just to recap on the other series, just to touch base, uh, Cavs. Abs- well, first, the Cavs absolutely shot the ball out the ball or the three point ball. Amazing. You're like, struggling today. You're struggling. I am. Today. I am. I'm spitting all over myself. I didn't bring a water, which has been a uh, which has been a bad bad decision by me. It wasn't clutch at all. But uh, no, the the Cavs absolutely shot the ball at a historic pace from beyond the three-point line. They crushed the Hawks. It's amazing to me to think that the Hawks or in either the Spurs or the Thunder are being eliminated in the same round. It just doesn't seem fair. And the other team that's going to be eliminated is the Raptors or the Heat. And so basically we're looking or at – Or the Warriors or the Trailblazers. Well, we know the Trailblazers are gone. I, I, I don't – but but the Trailblazers that's that's more respectable. And just think about the Hawks and the it's basically you're saying the Hawks and the Thunder or Spurs are on the same level, which just seems seems ridiculous. But the Cavs have eliminated the Hawks. They're waiting around for the winner of the Raptors and the and the Heat, which is playing right now with the Raptors up two games to one. Um, both of those teams sustain major injuries with losing their big men. Um, Whiteside may be out for the series with a sprained knee. Same. Same injury as Steph Curry, and uh, Valanciunas rolled up on his ankle, and he's out for the series. And then, of course, we have the other game playing, as you mentioned, the Warriors versus Trailblazers. Steph Curry, will he play, will he not? Uh, hasn't been decided yet at this moment. But uh, that, you know, the Portland Portland looked really good the other night. when They, they did. They did. So, uh, I mean, they could – that team, man, you look at that roster, and I'm not sure how they do it besides Dame Lillard. I mean, the more the more they're exposed they've been during the playoffs. Because I'm I'm not gonna lie, I'm not watching much Trailblazers basketball. I didn't even know they're the fifth seed till the playoffs started. Like I, it just wasn't anything that East Coast I props. Thought, I, yeah, I just didn't know that. I didn't know you could lose four starters and be the fifth seed. Like improve actually, lose with Marcus Aldridge and become better. But that's a testament to to Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum. But there's our basketball reclap, and that's where they stand right now. Hopefully, uh. The Spurs and Thunders have that conference final feel, but next week we'll be getting into the conference finals finally. And I know that's really where you where you pick up watching kind of the games every night is when we get to the you know the real four teams that actually have a shot at a title. And that's so right. We've we've eliminated these fake teams that that always give give their fan bases that uh that aka the, the Eastern Conference. <laughs> yeah, you're just waiting for the Cavs to come out of the East. But anyway, Nick, last week we uh we had an interesting scenario happen with uh, some recruiting a texas a&m coach uh, his name is aaron moorhead he's an assistant coach he had an interesting twitter rant that caused caused some unexpected problems what initiated the rant was their five-star quarterback recruit for the aggies uh six minutes prior to uh, mr moorhead's tweet had decommitted from texas a&m then mr moorhead came out with a tweet about loyalty um, you know, a mysterious tweet that was just terrible timing that just came out six minutes after this guy decommitted about loyalty and, and staying loyal to the program. 
blotty, blotty, blotty. And from there, I think it took off to a point that even he wasn't expecting. I think there were other players that decommitted. There were uh, recruits looking at the program who said because of this tweet, it it's made them look away from the program. So it's potentially in the end going to cost them four, five, six recruits. And I saw that, that coach uh, Sumlin punished the assistant coach, but whose fault is this? I mean, is it the fault of the coach or, or do the recruits have too much power to say, okay, I have a commitment to you guys, but no, never mind. I'm going to decommit just like that. I mean, I looked at that and I was trying to think about it both ways. Who, who in your opinion is at fault? Is it the coach for, for the immature tweet or is it the recruits for not keeping up with their word? Man, I think it's got to be the coach, but at the same time, I mean, this is, this is, this has got to be, I mean, this is just the fault of social media. And I, I love it. I, I think social media is great. Um, it's certainly brought more good than bad with, with how it's emerged. But at the same time, you know, social media has changed a lot of things. You know, we can make a long list of things that it has drastically changed from how media outlets operate. Um, you know, now, now being able to go directly to the public, no longer do you have to wait until the paper comes out the next morning. Um, same thing when it comes to athletic departments or professional organizations, no longer having to rely on the media to deliver their information. Now they can deliver directly to their fans. Um, and recruiting is another thing that has just been majorly impacted by social media. Um, you know, kids nowadays, they'll, they'll tweet out their, you know, their top 35 list of schools, their third day as a freshman in high school. And, you know, it's just, it's such a flooded market, but this is just a unique case of, um, I think what Aaron Moorhead did and, you know, me being someone that worked in an athletic department as a graduate assistant for a little bit, have a little bit of a, you know, experience seeing and observing recruiting wars and how they operate, you know, what he did is not really that unique. There are a lot of assistant coaches in college football, in college basketball that subtweet about recruits, um, both good and bad. And I think it's interesting how this one snowballed on him because, the, you know, like I said, it's happened elsewhere and I haven't necessarily seen such a negative reaction from recruits. Um, I don't know, man. It, it's just, it's a world where a verbal commitment is exactly that. It's a verbal commitment, you know, and you can't lock these 15 and 16 year old boys into binding contracts because things change in their life. You know, their parents could, something could happen to their father. He gets poor health and now they want to stay close to home. You know, something could happen in their life academically. Um, you know, they could improve and better opportunities could come about for them. I'm all for the high school kid thinking and weighing all options before making a decision. So I do not think the kids who decommitted are in any fault at all. Um, all they did was verbal to that school. You know, as soon as they sign what their fall of their senior year, that that's another thing. But what are your thoughts, Evan? I mean, are, do, you, do you think protect the, the high school kids kind of on the same boat as me? Or do you think that these cash cow schools should be able to lock these kids in earlier in high school? Now you, I, I, I don't necessarily like the word protect, but in my opinion, these student athletes, especially in football, like in this scenario right here, that five-star recruit is going to go somewhere and make that school a lot of money. And if he lives up to his potential, correct? Mm -hmm. So 
if he wants to take his time to make the decision and decommit before he chooses right school, that's fine with me because that's really the last decision he's going to – like he doesn't get paid to go to the school and play. You know what I mean? He gets the scholarship. He's going to make them money. So in my opinion – He's going to make himself money in, I mean, yeah. long, long term. Long term. I mean, you have different, different. I think we have different viewpoints on student athletes being paid, but that's that's not for this conversation. So to have this decision, and plus, I'm thinking back, man. I mean, we didn't have that kind of pressure on us, or I mean, now with social media, you saying that this kid or, or recruit recruits are hearing from just random people in the fan. You know, you got 47 year old Jimmy who's a UK fan harping in on this five star basketball recruit every day. You yep. know what I mean? Always in his mention. So it's completely different. So, yeah, if, if their head's a little bobbled at 17, 16, 18 years old and they don't know exactly what they're going to do and they change up something, it's not on them. And that was really if, – if what you're saying is true about the, the coaches subtweeting, that's, that's really immature and petty. I mean, I know that's what they do for a living is to go out and get these guys and bring them there. And it, it, hurt, it hurts them when guys decommit that they think they've got them to the university. But man, you gotta you gotta be the adult in this situation because yeah, they are they're literally kids. Like they're not we're not, they're not even twenty one. I think me and you can agree. You grow up a lot from age from the minute you get out of high school to the end of college. So Absolutely. thinking ba- thinking back to me being a high school senior, like I was asking my mom a ton of questions that I probably should have known. But and you're making a decision on where to go, like who who to put your future in, like what's going to be the best for you. Yeah, you can go back and you can decommit, especially if it's verbal. Like you said, once they put it on paper, that's for real. So you can make 5,000 verbals, and it, it really wouldn't bug me because um, at the end of the day, like, I don't, I don't care about that. So, no, I don't think it's the student's fault. And the coach, I just think that it was just, uh, you know, I, honestly, if it wasn't such a slow week in sports last week, I'm not sure if this is a story. You know, this, this could happen, like, multiple times, and we just never know it. But it happened, like, on a Tuesday evening on a week that was basketball was the Spurs and Thunder weren't playing that night. I think it was the Hawks blowing out or the Hawks being blown out by the Cavs. I mean, there was nothing to talk about the next day. So this is kind of, this is kind of generated, but yeah, let let kids be kids, man. Um, You know, and I think the last note on this for me, it's these recruiting guys, these coaches who are, you know, specialized in recruiting, um, they're on social media constantly because that has become almost their main way of recruiting. You know, you only get so many visits, you only get so many contacts, but me going on social media and me tweeting a picture, you know, with my family in a certain location on vacation or talking about my new favorite rap song or whatever it is, I'm doing that trying to make myself appear cool and appealing and relatable to these recruits. You know what I mean? Yep. So I almost think that these recruiting guys almost forget for a second that they're not one of these kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because subtweeting yep. something like that after a breakup is exactly what a 16-year-old high school kid would be doing, not what a 35 or 40 or 45-year-old wide receivers coach would be doing. Yep. But it's almost like, like they get so caught up in the lifestyle. I, I don't know. It's weird. Uh, do you see where I'm going with this? It's almost oh, like they, you know, they, they try so much to be relatable to these kids that yep. they kind of forget for a second – their job and who they actually are. And I think that's what happened with this guy, Aaron Moorhead. I don't know if you remember, he actually played for the Colts for a little bit. Um, he was a super, no. Bowl, he was a super bowl champion on super bowl 41 there in 2006 when they beat the bears, um, actually caught six or seven balls in the playoffs there, but from, from Manning, but 
anyway, I think it's just a, a very unfortunate situation where, um, you know, the coach should have, um, should have remembered his role, who he was and, uh, you know, Hey, well, I'm not, I'm not one of these kids, you know, they can get away with doing that, but I can't. Nick, that wasn't a great point. I didn't even think about you're right. I mean, these coaches are paid to be inside the mind of 16, 17, 18 year old kids. So they have to think like them. And this just seems to be a, they have action. to they have to act like them, you know. To, yeah. Whenever they interact with them, you I want agree. you want to walk in that that kid's house, earn the respect of his parents first and foremost, but also you want that kid to say, "Hey, I want, coach, coach, you know, coach Boone's cool. I want to go to his school and hang out with him." That's what it yeah. comes down to. That's a great point. Didn't even think of it like that. But let's uh, let's transition on here, Nick. We are, you know, we're roughly like thirty games in the baseball season, and we are about to do our first real baseball topic. We did a little preseason topic podcast ago, but we never have actually dug into this baseball stuff. So what I want to dig into is something we talk about all the time. Jake Arrieta has been unbelievable since last season. I mean, he's got like a 20-game streak where the only time he's lost is when the other guy threw a no-hitter. Yes. I mean, just, week, just weeks ago, he threw his second no-hitter in eight months. I mean, the guy has went to the Cubs and went from – I mean, I would say not even mediocre. He was a bad pitcher as an Oriole. He was like on the verge of, of losing his spot, and he comes to the Cubs, and he has just recreated himself. I mean, he is literally unhittable. I mean, we go into games. I mean, he was pitching against the Pirates a week ago, and you were like, well, you can just mark down 0 for 4 for Kutch because this guy's just unhittable right now. And we go into yesterday's game. They're playing the Nationals, and I'm looking forward to this. It's really the first marquee matchup I'm looking forward to this season. Harper versus Arietta, right? And you know what I got out of that? I got a four-pitch walk, I got a five-pitch walk, and I got an intentional walk. Arietta didn't even go at Harper. I mean, the guy who's been unhittable for the last, the last calendar year almost, I mean, he's been I, – I, I couldn't believe it. And I felt like fans were ripped off in Chicago. But, I mean, it was just – it's very similar to, like, it was, it was the strategy Joe Madden had for, against Harper. And it worked because they swept the series. But, it's again, it's like watching a basketball game where DeAndre Jordan's being fouled 5,000 times throughout the game. <laughs> and you had to watch it. Like, it made the game miserable, and it took away from star on star. You know what I mean? So right. just, I mean, oh, he had seven plate appearances yesterday, and none of them were official because he was intentionally walked, walked, or hit by a pitch. I mean, it's – they didn't even go at him at all. And it just stinks, man. It, it stinks. And I just want to know – your thoughts and reaction to that. I mean, you have to applaud the Cubs, right? Great strategy. They won. They swept the series. That's how they wanted to pitch Harper all series long. But does it not bug you that Arietta, who has been no hittable twice again in the last eight months, said, "No, I'm not going to go at him." Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does because, again, you're talking to a guy here who um, pirate fan. So we all know what happened in the Cy Young game last year when you just had absolutely no, no hope. I mean, it was, it was one of the cruelest things to watch, not to get off topic, but it's just, there's nothing worse than watching it knowing there's nothing you can do. You know what I mean? There's nothing. And it's frustrating because he didn't shy away from anybody on the pirates over the last, you know, 
three or four yeah. matchups they face. I mean, he's gone right after Kutch. You can better you better believe that. But I don't know. You know, I made I I, I made the point to you before we actually started the podcast today. You know, he was off his game a little yesterday for Arietta, Arietta standards. Gave up two earned, three runs total. And I, I I tried to bring up the point. You know, maybe he knew he was off his game, which is being smart, picking and choosing who he wanted to face when he didn't have his stuff. But then you made the point that. You know, heck, he pitched around Harper in the very first inning after sitting down the first two guys. So he pitched around him before I think he even realized that he was going to have his off game. You know, he wasn't going to have his stuff. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of weird to me. Um, I don't know if that was just the plan all weekend. Um, if that's it what, was. You know, Madden, kind of... Madden said, you know, this is the plan. And when Arietta took the hill, um, he said, hey, the plan doesn't change. And he was just kind of doing what a coach said. I'm not sure. Um, but it does bring up the point. I mean, the Nationals – this is becoming a common theme. Um, you know, the Cubs certainly took it to a new level this weekend where Harper's now had 12 straight plate appearances without recording an official at bat, um, which yep. was the longest of such streak, I believe, in Major League Baseball history. Modern, yeah. Um, so now, you know, it's bringing up a question here for Dusty Baker. You know, what do you do? Um, I'm going to ask you a question first, okay? Okay. I love questions. Clint Hurdle has a theory. Okay. Put put that put that put that to the side for a second, okay? So the okay. argument is you got to put a guy behind Harper who is a dangerous hitter, because then you can't pitch around him because now you have to face the guy who is just as dangerous as Bryce Harper on deck with somebody already on base, potentially more. Correct? Mm-hmm. That that's the main thought. See, yep. Clint, Clint Hurdle's thought is opposite of that. Clint Hurdle thinks the guys ahead of that batter protect him because if those guys get on base. You're not going to walk Harper to put even, you know, there may not be a base available and you're not going to load them up, if that makes sense. Yep. So that's Clint Hurdle's thought. Which side are you on? Is it the guys before him or the guys after him in the lineup that are so crucial to making sure he sees pitches? Well, initially I was going to say the guy right behind him because I think the guy right behind him has to has to put the fear. I mean, Ryan Zimmerman was the guy yesterday behind him. And the Cubs basically said, you know, we'll put a guy in scoring position because we don't think Zimmerman can come through. You know what I mean? So right. I, I don't really see it like Hurdle. Uh, I see it like the guy behind him is the guy protecting, which kind of to me, um, uh, as owning Daniel Murphy in fantasy baseball and knowing that he's been amazing this year as far as average and just getting hits, I can't believe that he's not the guy batting behind Harper. Well, you don't want to go lefty-lefty, and now all of a sudden you're in the seventh inning and you've got a lefty specialist in the pin, and now you've got back-to-back lefty set up for it. I mean, that's the argument of why you want to make sure you keep a righty back there for the righty-lefty method. But my argument to that is if you're bringing a lefty in out of the bullpen, Harper's hitting him, first of all, because Harper yeah. can hit lefties. And Daniel Murphy right now is hitting him because Daniel Murphy's on a tear, and he hits lefty pretty well as himself. So I think that argument goes out the window of worrying about having lefty-lefty back-to-back because I think both guys hit lefties, agree? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a good one. I'm just thinking Daniel Murphy's on fire. I think he's hitting everybody right now, and I just don't know why. But your point's valid. I mean, and Dusty Baker is a classic coach, so the left-right-left batters in the later innings are, are great. But Especially the meteor that, order, you know? Yeah, and you put now that you put that, the thought about hurdle, his thoughts in my head, you know, the guys in front of Harper aren't that great. Like You've right got now, Revere batting 150 well, hold and on, Rendon hold on, batting hold 211. On, hold on. Throw out Revere. Revere literally just got back two days ago. The guy they had up there was Michael A. Taylor, and I know he was terrible. 187. 
Yeah, with a billion strikeouts. So, you know, in his point, those guys really weren't setting up the table either. Um, yeah, yeah, you had 187 from Taylor, and you had 211 from Rendon, and then yeah. Harper. And Harper's only batting 260 himself. No, he went through a, he went through a bad streak there for about two weeks. I mean, he got off to a blazing start. I mean, he had seven home runs and 20 RBIs before I blinked my eyes in the season, but he's slowed up now. But maybe that's it, though. And he struck out a lot, so it's not just this. But, I mean, if you're not consistently seeing pitches when you go up to the plate, that's got to mess with you, right? Like, okay, I'm going to get walked twice a year. Now I'm going to be up the bat in here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, doesn't that, it screw with your focus? Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that I think people didn't appreciate about Bonds as much during the year when he hit 73, when he saw the 220 walks or whatever insane amount of walks it was. Yeah. You know, that guy would see at bat after at bat, intentional walk after intentional walk, ball in the dirt after ball in the dirt, and was still locked in enough to hit 73. I mean, steroids or not, that to me is extremely impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it's Yeah, I mean, Bonds with a Hall of Famer before steroids or not. So. It would have been so easy to be lulled to sleep as people continued to pitch around me. But side note on Murphy to end this discussion here, average up to 402 now. Well, let's break some news for these people, especially all those national fans out there. You know, there's sources out there saying tonight that Strasburg is signing on for seven more years in the nation's capital at $175 million, which leads to one question. How the heck are they going to sign Bryce Harper for five billion dollars? I think they're paying. I think you could say bye bye to Bryce. I'm, I was. I would assume the Bronx will be calling pretty soon. I, they have to. I mean, they, they pay insurance over two hundred million, aren't they? I mean, I mean, they they, they got like almost four hundred million invested in two pitchers. I think. Like, how are you going to pay? Maybe that's why they don't have a guy who can protect Bryce Harper because they decided that they're going to invest in their two power right-handed arms and they're going to have nobody else. They just got three guys I think they're going to win with. But that's that discussion's for another day. National is still up there as one of the better teams in the National League. Okay, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the bigger storage for this week. Let's move back to, to our favorite our favorite segment here. And we both bring something to the table this week in the peas. Um, so I will let you uh, you go first, Nick. What uh, what had, What's bugging you this week? You know, I'm going to keep it in line with the recruiting conversation we have, okay? I, and and if any of these guys are listening, I don't want anyone to get offended um, because it's not necessarily them that is the peeve, okay? It is kind of like, and I don't want to get cliche with this, it's the idea of them, okay? And these people are your, basically the guys who like work for Scout and Rivals. You know all of those amazing rankings you love to look at who's the top football quarterback in the class who's the 23rd ranked shooting guard I mean all these guys for ESPN everything that formulate those rankings I mean there's obviously guys behind those who's ranking them okay and more importantly there's those guys who are telling you what schools that person is considering who he has visited who he's verbal to I mean that's a lot of information right a lot of information. And that's a lot of information that's not really being printed in any sort of newspaper. I mean, that's just kind of stuff you gotta you gotta research and know. So my, my peeve is just basically those people's jobs. <laughs> it's extremely weird to me that they like sit at home all day and basically have to just follow the tweets of sixteen year old boys. You know what I mean? Like 
Way to put it in creepy terms. That's not that's not what I meant by that. But a sixteen year old boy's Twitter account is gonna be you know, imagine like his string of tweets from like, you know, a retweet of like World Star Hip Hop to like a you know I love pizza. Just yeah. Justin Bieber meme and now, you know, in this in this forty five year old recruiting beat writer's gotta follow all this just to wait for the good stuff. You know, and they and now they have to uh, I don't know. I don't really know how to put it into words, but my peeve is just basically that job. Social media has created it, and mm-hmm. it's just really weird that you know these these high school kids. Their every move is is under a microscope, and it's being publicized on all these blog sites about where they're going. You know, this kid was seen yep. wearing a. I found this tweet of you know John Smith, the three star quarterback from Glendale High School wearing a Oregon Ducks hoodie at the basketball game in the student section. So now the rumor mill is that he, you know, that that's the type of stuff that I don't know, man. It's, it's, no, really, it's, it's, it's the, the um, it's, it's, I, go ahead. I don't know how to put it in words. It's a need for information. It's the information age. I mean, everybody's so struck for information. We always need more, more now, 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 which has forced these guys to, you know, instead of trying to get on the scoop, they have to go into these people's lives like this. I get what you're saying. It's it's weird, but you're right. This culture today has driven us to this. It's it's weird. To me, it's, just, it's just a comedy event. I mean, it's just whole Paramount event, um, like you said, around people demanding information, around fans wanting to know who the next big star is going to be at their school. All this has sparked it. And then obviously people like me who go and look at where, you know, where this guy's ranked in the class and what schools he's considered. I mean, I'm the driving force for it as well. I'm just as responsible for it. Um, But it's just a peep to me that, you know, these guys are are in a position where they basically have to not to use the word creep, but yes, that's their job. Okay, Nick, you got a peep for us. I got, this is the most, I mean, I, this is the most frustrating thing I think I see in sports. So I'm watching watching the Raptors game, right? Uh, I think they are playing – I think this is a game against the Heat. It's game one. And they got about 10 – no, it's not game one. They uh, they hit the halftime buzzer beater. In one of these games the Raptors are playing, there's about 10 seconds left on the clock, right? Okay. The game's tied. So <laughs> they call a timeout. They go over the huddle. They huddle up. They, uh, you know, coaches over there drawing something on the board. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm like, let's see what he's got. Let's see what he's gonna draw up. So, Kyle Lowry takes the inbounds pass. Does not progress anywhere. Does not move towards the basket. Takes one step left. Fires up an air ball. We're going to overtime. This is the most frustrating thing in all of sports to me. We are talking about a professional coach who's paid millions of dollars who is now scared to draw up a play at the end of the games. I saw this in the Atlanta-Boston series, too. They had 13 seconds. All T did was dribble out front, and then he got blocked. Like, the coaches are scared to draw a play. And that's Atlanta's coach, Mike Budenholzer, who was coach of the year last year. I don't understand why coaches in the NBA are scared to draw up plays. I've heard reasons like, oh, what happens if they get the shot off too quick and leave too much time on the clock? What happens if you get off a good shot? You know what I mean? Like, not everybody's LeBron James who can just bulldoze his way into the lane and then make a great decision. Like, all these guys are doing are getting terrible shots. 
highly contested shots, shots that are way behind the three-point line, and none of them ever turn out well. If they go in, it's, it's almost miraculous. It's the same as shooting a half-court shot. And I don't understand why the coach can't just draw up a play. That's, now, that's one of the areas, and this is – I have a very short list of reasons. I'm an NBA guy over college basketball. But in college basketball, I genuinely enjoy coming out of timeouts because they draw up plays. And I want to see what the coach does. I want to see what the execution But I do not get why in the NBA they are so scared to draw up the play. You're being paid millions of dollars, and you call a timeout to sit over there and say, okay, you're going to get the ball and dribble out the clock and take a terrible shot. Like, that's, that's all that's happening. Like, literally, the four of the guys are just standing. It's iso ball, and the guy doesn't make a play. It drives me absolutely insane. I do not get how you are paid millions of dollars to not draw up a play. Like, like, do they not run over this stuff? Like, for instance, Jay Wright draws up a perfect play for the win at the buzzard against North Carolina. I mean, do they not have any plays like that written back in the book? Does this not frustrate you? I mean, I threw a bottle across the room because I was so disgusted with that. <laughs> I mean, it just drives me absolutely nuts. These are professional athletes. Why are they scared to run a play? These are the best of the best. You know what I mean? They should be able to make two passes. They should be able to do screens and backdoor cuts, and they're just scared of it. We would rather you dribble out here and take a terrible shot than, than even dream up of drawing up a play. I mean, that would be the worst thing in the world is to potentially get a layup or make a basket and put us in the league with one second left on the clock because that's too much time. And then I failed as a coach. Drives me absolutely nuts. I mean, it's pitiful, man. You know, and, I, and I think there a lot of times, you know, putting things on a clipboard in a huddle is a heck of a lot easier than actually having it pan out. Um, you know, there are so many variables that happen from the moment you break the huddle until, you know, that shot is taken. But I think that those variables define a coach. Knowing those variables and also having his team so disciplined and so crisp to knowing what he wants, you know, with the spacing to every little minute detail and execution, I think that defines the coach. So I'm with you. And I, I, I'm a more college basketball guy than NBA guy. You know that. So I know guys out of timeout in college basketball. I know Bob Huggins is atrocious. I know Bill Self is amazing. I know that Jay Wright is amazing. You can, you know, you can really kind of and, – and, 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 again, that story for another day, Huggins is not an X's and O's types coach. He is so good for many other reasons. But I think you can really define a coach's X's and O's in the NBA on that execution. How are they spacing their guys? Let me give you one more example because this is the one that really gets me. Because they can do it, too. Like, these NBA coaches can do it. So the Heat are playing the other night, and they're down three to the Raptors, right? And Eric Spolster, coach of the Heat, draws up a beautiful delay, delayed play that left the guy wide open for three, and he hits it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, then I'll see him on another night just give, just give the ball to D-Wade and just let him go. Like, okay, so you can do it when you have to have a three-pointer. When you have to have a certain bucket, you'll do it. But if you have – if it's tied, no, we don't draw up plays for tied games. We'll do it for when we're down, but not for tied games. That's another reason it bugs me. Like, they can do it. They're just choosing not to, and I just I, – I don't know why you play for overtime. Like, I just don't – and you know what? I was – once Kyle Lowry shot that ball the other night and airballed it versus the Heat, I immediately wanted the Heat to win. <laughs> I, because that – you just – you threw away – you threw away an opportunity to win the game. So that's on you, not on anybody else. But, okay, I'm done yelling. I'm done yelling. It, <laughs> it, it gets me too mad, man. It's just, I, I mean, I know you're, it's, you're just paying millions of dollars. I mean, would you, you, would, would you take that job? I know that, it, you know, it, it would come with, obviously, you having to draw up plays, but would you be okay with that? 
on the uh, job description? Yes, just draw up a play, man. Just like if I'm the GM, I'm just, it, I don't know. I don't. Nah, yeah, I do know. It's it's annoying. And if you don't have a top five scorer in the league, then don't do that. I don't want to see Jeff Teague out there dribbling the ball, not progressing it. When your whole offense is based around moving the ball, I don't want to see Jeff Teague just hold it at the top. So right. yeah, forget it. Peas are over. I'm hot now. Uh, let's. That's it. You got anything? <laughs> I'm I'm done, man. You got anything else, man? That's it, man. That's it. I, um, slow week in sports last week. I, uh, it it, I, it I was. Think we may do with what we had, but we'll uh, hopefully we have some some more uh, compelling topics to break down next week. Yeah, compelling. We'll uh, we'll try to get a little more a little more creative here. Please let us know how we're doing out there. Uh, we had the email set up at thereasonradio@gmail.com. Tweet us. Hit us up on Facebook. Uh, please give us a like on Facebook. Just let us know how we're doing as we uh, we continue to grow and develop. We love having an audience to uh, to grow and develop with, and we're open to anything. So, with that being said, I'll uh, I'll close off with Nick Arthur. I am Evan Shamlin. This was the Reason Radio. <laughs>